0: Now, the Secretary of State, Chris Heaton-Harris, he is looking seriously at a proposal involving formal dialogue with these paramilitary uh, groups. Uh, he's going to need a go-between or a series of go-betweens. Is, is he serious about trying to talk to paramilitaries as they are at this present minute in time?
1: Well, if, if, this goes back to the, the Independent Reporting Commission report which came out last year. So they have been reporting annually. That was a, a group that was appointed by the, the First and Deputy First Minister back when we did have a First and Deputy First Minister. And they have been reporting that annually on the sort of transition of those paramilitary groups who should no longer exist. So just I suppose just to be clear, I'm not sure that when he's saying about speaking about the transition of groups, he's speaking about people like the new RA who are responsible for the attempted murder of um, John Caldwell. He's speaking about those, I suppose, the historic groups, the groups that date back to the the troubles um, that are officially on ceasefire, but yet have continued to retain their structures, have continued to recruit and have continued to be involved in activity. Some of that, such as, you know, we know the UVF was responsible for the hoax bomb that was left in North Belfast when Simon Coveney was trying to attend a meeting um, last year, and you know those sort of paramilitary style assaults and shootings that still take place so he's talking about those sort of groups which would probably be you know the the uda the uvf the red hand and the INLA. those groups that are still happening to their structures but haven't transitioned fully um and that's what they who the IRC tend to, to look at your their annual report so some of those groups have expressed an interest in saying that they want to transition um, that they want to go away and but they say that they need help to do that because of various different reasons um but because one group won't transition i don't think without the whole lot going along with them the rc seems like it's possible but they said that not enough has been done that sort of i was taken off the ball but you know i'm a bit wary of these things because it's, i don't know how many times i've covered these transitioning groups before there was the the Conflict Transformation Initiative a, a way back, that was so far back, Margaret Ritchie was a minister in government at the time and she ended up removing their funding. That was a loyalist group that said that they were helping to transition the UDA and then we had the, the launch of the, the Loyalist Community Council back in 2015, that was over in the... Park Avenue Hotel and, and Jonathan Powell showed up and said that this was going to be a vehicle, an umbrella group that was going to help those groups transition. And as you know, the Loyalist Communities Council now I think that's the, they seem to be some sort of protocol action group, but they don't talk about transition at all anymore. So, I mean, it's been done before to various degrees of success. The problem is that a lot of these initiatives, they use the carrot, they use incentives, they use funding, they use jobs, they use bodies and there is not enough stick, you know, people will then look at it and say, well, what about the sort of criminality involved in this? Why isn't that being dealt with? And what do you do then around that? So the, the Secretary of State, I think that he's right to say that dialogue is always best, because it is. It's always better that you keep talking to people. But um, in my opinion, a lot of the ones who were going to transition, and there are some very good examples of people who have transitioned completely and are now you know, being very active and and good roles within the community, but they are no longer consider themselves part of any organisation, that those um, groups already did that a long time ago. And what you're left with now is, is you know, a, a series of, of small little groups of leadership that almost operate like individual little sort of victims, and that's much more difficult, I think, to deal with because, a lot of those groups exist for self-gain of a lot of their members, and what would be the incentive for them to transition?
0: And that is the million-dollar question, isn't it? Because those organizations you named on, on the list there, they tend to be involved in drug dealing, and extortion. They are involved in blackmail, coercion. They're, every sinister undertaking that you can think of, they're head and heels in it.
1: Yeah, and then there's there's the issue if if government comes along and says that we're going to you know appoint a person or a series of people and, and that we're going to have this dialogue and some of that will happen behind closed doors and some of that will happen publicly. The IRC themselves, who you know recommended that something more be done to transition, but in previous reports they have cautioned with the the close relationship between some of these people who are known to be senior paramilitaries and authorities and the police. Um, because you would have situations where if there was, say, a riot or street disturbance, with us, the, the police would be in contact with people who they consider to have influences in that community, and they're often people with paramilitary connections, and the IRC cautioned that, that by doing that, they're giving legitimacy to those people. So if you're someone who lives in that community and you are maybe um, being subject to, to criminality on behalf of one of those groups, you're being intimidated, you're being threatened, extorted, and then you see that person cozying up to you know the local senior police officer. Well, it 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 would wouldn't really incentivize you to go and report them or make a statement against them. So the IRC, IRC warned against that. I mean, I have been you know at, at government events held by both the the British and the Irish, where you've seen people who have known paramilitary connections, you know, rubbing shoulders with with the great and good, um, you know, wandering around with a, a glass of prosecco in their hand. And you think where else in the world would you even get? Such strange dynamics that exist when you know that by night those people remain, you know, a person who holds some kind of rank within a, a paramilitary group. So, you know, Christine Harris, I know what he's saying. I do think that there is scope to let some people who want to sort of transition into those sort of old boys of societies to, to do that and get off the stage. But for those younger ones, and remember a lot of these organisations continue to recruit and do recruit, those younger people, I don't think that any of them have, have much interest in, in transitioning. Um, and it's easy for you know him to say that we should do this or that. But secretary of states here come and go. You know, it's the people who live here who have to stay behind and deal with with the the problems that these groups cause and uh, cause within their own community.
0: Mo Mowlam did it, of course. She would ride into the prisons and talk to some of the most sinister people this country mm. has ever bred.
1: She did, and I was thinking about her, her this morning as well. She went in at a time, but remember the circumstances there were that some of those loyalist paramilitary leaders were not on board for the ceasefire, they were not on board for the peace process, and she went in to persuade them, and she did persuade them, and it worked. And I mean, you go right back to the 70s, I mean, we know from the state papers, um, that Martin McGuinness is a very young man in his 20s, was in dialogue with the British government in London in, in the very early 70s about calling an, an IRA ceasefire at that time. So this has always happened. There's always been sort of back channels. There's always been negotiations. There's always been people... Could, but, I mean, um, that was to bring us to the combined Loyalist Military Command ceasefires, and that was to bring us to the Good Friday Agreement. What happened after that, I do think that there was a period where nobody bothered to sort of nurture the piece, if you like, that they didn't bother to see it through to the next le- next step. So um, we had decommissioning, but then after that, what happened? And a lot of those groups, they maintained their structures. They continued to recruit young people, and they maintained their sort of leadership structures. I mean, I, when I was covering the IRC report in December and I was speaking to the commissioners, there's, some groups would be easier to transition than others because they do still have... An overall leadership so for instance the uvf retain a sort of leadership that's been in place from the 80s um and they would be people of influence but the UDA splintered long a time ago with you know internal feuds and all sorts of other things to a bunch of you know individual sort of leaders and fiefdoms all around the place and i don't know how who do you talk to then who's the person in charge of transitioning you know you're trying to find who is the person of influence when there could be 10 people you know of influence all across northern ireland who have influence over various different factions um at some stage you have to draw a line and say look this is done now anyone who needs to transition we're going to help you but you have to transition by x y and z date and if you're not transitioned by then then that's it you know all bets are off there'll be no more funding there'll be no more um vetting of you there'll be no more negotiations it's just a criminal justice response to it from then on and you know, people say, Well, well i just go and arrest them all. I mean that that's we tried that with a tournament, and it didn't work. But the the paramilitary crime task force has done a relatively good job in trying to crack down on some of the criminality associated with these groups. I mean, I get press releases, you know, day and daily from the police about arrests and drug seizures and all sorts of other things that are linked to the paramilitary crime task force. But it it's only scratching the surface. You know, often they're they're quite low down. Um, you know, sort of foot soldiers, I suppose you'd call them within those organisations. The the Crime task force don't really seem to have much success in, in getting into the actual top tier of those groups and trying to dismantle them that way. So maybe the R C thinks that that's the best way to do is appoint a person, and a person would be in the form of, I suppose, like a Chris Patton type character who come in to help reform policing. You know, one person from outside of here who he doesn't have skin in the game, he, you know, isn't going to be tainted by their own views or bias to come in and say, right, well, this is what we need to do and this is what we're going to do. And if it isn't done by this time, well, then you're no longer considered or even spoke about in those terms. We don't call you a paramilitary. You know, we don't call you a member of an organisation. You're just a criminal. It'll be
0: interesting to see how it develops, if it does develop at all. Uh, Alison, thank you very much indeed. Alison Morris, award-winning Alison Morris from the Belfast Telegraph. Right, this is the U105 phone-in. If you're just joining us, you're very welcome. Uh, Good morning. Uh, Plenty to do between now and 12 noon. You may have some suggestions as well, and they're always exceptionally welcome. There could be something happening in your neck of the woods that we're not aware of that we'd never get around to covering. You know the number. It's 0289033105.